0: The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we venture back to the arid deserts of Egypt in the year 1921. A British archaeological expedition has unearthed a sarcophagus containing the 3,700-year-old mummy of Imhotep, a high priest of the Temple of the Sun at Karnak, who was evidently buried alive for committing sacrilege. Perhaps he was a bit too gay with one of the Vestal Virgins found with him is the scroll of thoth an ancient scroll believed to bring life to the dead however both the mummy and the scroll have mysteriously vanished and one of the archaeologists has been found raving mad have these relics been stolen maybe there really is something to this scroll of thoth only the enigmatic ardith bay may know for sure grab your pith helmet and pack plenty of water because it's time to head to cairo in search of the mummy to a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them, children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am!
1: (laughs) You're insane. I tell you I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a
0: little walk. He have seen his face. <laughs> Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we're talking about Universal's 1932 production of The Mummy, starring Karloff the Uncanny as the titular mummy, and directed by cinematographer extraordinaire Carl Freund. I'm the invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host and chief excavator, Monster Mike Manzi. How's it going, Mike?
1: I'm doing good. I'm ready to get down into the dirt and dig up some fun about the mummy.
0: I don't know about you, Mike, but in terms of overall popularity, I find The Mummy to be one of the least popular of all the Universal Monsters. Maybe it has something to do with Boris Karloff spending more time in a fez than his mummy wrappings, or maybe it has more to do with the fact that the sequels abandoned Imhotep altogether in favor of the silent, shambling Karas, played by Tom Tyler and more famously Lon Chaney Jr. It definitely wasn't very well received by critics upon its release, but whatever the case may be, this film has certainly become one of the most iconic in the Universal Monsters canon due in large part to Jack Pierce's incredible makeup and in my opinion it might be the best mummy movie ever made. It allowed Carl Freund to improve upon the spooky atmosphere and beautiful high contrast cinematography that he contributed to Dracula and it really showcases Karloff's ability to play a ruthless articulate and somewhat sympathetic and romantic villain. Now do you remember your first experience with Imhotep specifically or mummies in general?
1: Yeah you know I have to admit like for me the mummy is definitely one that I've seen the least and I was trying to think back When did we first sort of recognize the imagery or the iconography of something like the mummy? And it's weird, like even to today, when I think of a monster wrapped in gauze, I think of the invisible man first for some reason, like the poor mummy, man. I'm sorry, dude. I kind (laughs) of think most people are familiar with the Brendan Fraser movies. Right. uh, If you ask Mm -hmm. them about the mummy, ironically, there's a character on his new show, Doom Patrol, that is also wrapped in gauze called Negative Man. The imagery is alive and well and still works, but it's weird, this this movie, The Mummy, when I think about it, it kind of gets lost in the mix. Thinking back to when I first, you know, saw someone wrapped in bandages going after somebody else, honestly, I think this time I can answer it was Scooby-Doo. There was never a Munster's uncle or aunt mummy or anything like that. They were on those old Abbott and Costello movies, but I think I would probably, you know, seen a, a Scooby. Do or two before that. So, even for me, like, I would say I'm very unfamiliar with this version of The Mummy. I've only seen this movie about three times now, scattered over the course of like 25 years. (laughs) You know, like, I've not seen this in a really long time. I was very excited to get to know this version a lot better, the original version
0: yeah I've, I've covered this a couple times already but i'll just to reiterate the mummy was one of the two vhs tapes i had when i was a kid uh, the other being frankenstein this one didn't play so well to me as a kid i mean looking back on it now as an adult in his 30s i can see why this one really didn't speak to me as a child. It doesn't have a whole lot to offer kids, right? It's it's more drama and romance than it is anything else. I mean, I saw it a couple of times as a kid. Some part of me knew that this was an iconic film, but it really didn't stick with me until I like revisited it as an adult. I've gone to bat for the mummy quite a few times in my adult life. I do think that it's maybe one of the best mummy movies ever made, but it took me a long time to get there. Just because when I thought mummies, you know, you think kind of that Gooby-Doo mummy, or you think. Basically, what Karis was, which was just this sort of shambling silent mummy that had more in common with like voodoo zombies than mummies, you know, in terms of how he was portrayed, you know, just sort of shuffling into a room and kidnapping a beautiful woman and always being commanded by some other outside force. So I've really developed a love for this movie in particular over time. But as a kid, what held my attention mummy wise had to have been the R.L. Stein Goosebumps book, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. Yeah. Still one of my favorites. I I recently read that a couple years ago while I was on vacation. And, you know, it's like a lot of the Goosebumps books. It holds up, at least nostalgia-wise. And, of course, as you mentioned, the 1999 Mummy with Brennan Fraser. When that movie came out, I didn't even realize that that was based on the Universal Studios Mummy. It took me quite a few years to really put the pieces together and there's an Ardith Bay, and this mummy is Imhotep and I've discovered this week that this is the first time Imhotep has been used as a character since this 1932 mummy. Like every other mummy movie or remake, anything that is sort of based on the universal property, they use the mummy Karis. Even Hammer Films, when they remade the mummy, their mummy is Karis. Imhotep had a long hibernation period from 1932 to 1999. To its credit, I think the 1999 Mummy, as much of it is an adventure film, I think it's still a lot of fun. And I think it does pay homage to its namesake in a pretty great way while, you know, also making a very, very different kind of movie.
1: Absolutely. A couple of things that you touched on there. Like, I certainly agree that this one doesn't seem to be necessarily uh, fashioned to sort of the younger audience. This one seems to be going more for, I always feel like I'm being insulting, but the more sort of literate crowd, like the ones who are reading the newspaper who knew about the uh, archaeological excavations that were going on at the time of like King Tut's tomb and all this stuff so it was sort of like oh if you went to museums and all this kind of stuff like you would be interested in this one I also feel like they they really toned down the comedy they also toned down a lot of like the warped sets they let the Egyptian imagery sort of carry that weight very well um, there's still a lot of amazing large cast shadows going on in here and so I'm just mm-hmm. like precise and immaculate filmmaking but I agree on that level like I think as a child or as a little kid, I'd be like, where's the action? There's really no adventure here. I was watching it thinking, you know, this has sort of got little hints and flavors of what will become Indiana Jones, and certainly the Brendan Fraser remake takes that to that level, where it's like we got everything we have here, plus all the action, we can now do these big chase scenes and these big extravagant battles with lots and lots of mummies and stuff. And I am also of the school of, who's Ardith Bay? Who's this Imhotep guy? kind of thing growing up I was like I had no idea the mummy had a name the backstory they developed here but I think this is a really great twist and would be very unexpected for anyone going back nowadays to watch this and be like hold on a second what's going on here he's um almost got more of like a Dracula flavor happening in this movie which I, I'm sure we're going to discuss at some point point. and I really like that idea that the mummy was revived from a curse and he's a guy now walking around doing stuff trying to accomplish Goal, and that's a very interesting thing that he's out of the bandages almost immediately and not even being called mummy. You know, he's got several aliases that he's going to be going by in this. So, overall, re watching it this time, it was almost like watching it again for the first time, and I was pretty riveted.
0: Yeah, same. I, like I said, I've seen this a handful of times as an adult, and even with this viewing, now I've, I've watched this movie a, a couple of times in the past week in preparation, and I was still catching details that I don't think I ever caught before. Part Part of it could be that this script is more dialogue heavy, very much like Dracula was, character driven and it's not really about, you know, big set pieces with special effects and big grand dramatic moments. It's very much in that Dracula vein where the movie is happening within the dialogue, right? You have to really pay attention to those conversations and I think it can be easy to lose focus when everything is crammed into the dialogue, especially in a monster movie, right? But I really like this sort of more grounded approach. approach. Now, we had talked about how Dracula was more grounded and we had talked about how Phantom very much seemed like a grounded film. And and Frankenstein is sort of the outlier so far in that it really leaned into German expressionism in the way that these others didn't. So now that I'm watching them in order, I did get a little bit of whiplash coming from Frankenstein into The Mummy. I'm like, oh, okay, we're not just in the real world, but we're in present day. This movie came out in 1932. So the majority of this film is set in 1932. But of course, it makes up for that a little bit in placing it in a, an exotic setting, you know, people in the United States would think of Egypt and Cairo as this very exotic setting, you know, even though it's set in modern day and it's very grounded, it is set in a very cool, interesting, mysterious place, which I, I really liked.
1: I'm thrilled that so far there hasn't been one of these set in the United States of America. You know, they're all out of the country and it just gives it that vibe. Like even to today, when I watch a foreign horror movie, I feel like they're more of real and visceral
0: I think that it's easier to suspend your disbelief a little bit when you're not familiar with the environment.
1: Yeah totally
0: if this movie were set in the United States you know it'd be a little difficult to imagine it happening down the street whereas most people in this country have never been to Cairo so you have a little bit of freedom there to kind of make up whatever you want and say this is the sort of stuff that could happen you know I think that was 100% intentional
1: I love that about it I love that there's no mistaking that this is like uh, this is a modern movie like this isn't you know this is shot almost like like I thought maybe Cary Grant was gonna walk through this picture at some point like <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) It gets to the point. It's like super classy. It becomes like very romantic uh, I do think you know we got some pre-code skin showing here like this is for adults and titillating at the time and I love that But we're switched up like you know it, it couldn't be sort of the furthest thing from the style and look of Frankenstein yet it fits within the same world like I could still believe that Edward Van Sloan is Van Helsing even <laughs> though he's not but I'm just saying like if he introduced himself that way I'd be like oh yeah this is the same bloke that like took down that vampire you know two movies ago it doesn't matter like they all still feel connected on that level
0: For sure. So let's dive right in. In 1922, King Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered and that was huge news all around the world. And Carl Lamley Jr. heard about this news and was inspired to make something kind of in that vein. So he commissioned a story editor, Richard Scheer, who I mentioned in our previous episode, he was one of the people who contributed to the story for Frankenstein. He was commissioned to find a novel, find a story, a play, something that kind of was Egyptian themed and, and and could capitalize on the discovery of King Tut's tomb. And when he came back empty handed, he was instead partnered up with author nina wilcox putnam who was pretty well known at the time and the two of them developed this story based on someone named alessandro Caliastro, who was a real person he was a self-proclaimed magician who had been alive for like decades or centuries of course it was all a bunch of bullshit he was a he's a con artist but this personality sort of inspired this story and so they put together a nine-page treatment called Caliastro. it was set in san francisco and it was about a 3,000-year-old magician who had survived over the years by injecting himself with nitrates.
1: There's versions of this movie out there, like silent film version, one from the 40s. So like this story, it got made. So I wasn't sure if this was going to be some sort of remake to that, or if this was a leftover from Paramount's attempt to make their version.
0: Oh, interesting. I didn't know a Cagliostro movie had been made. But so Carl Lamley Jr. was really excited about this project, and he knew immediately that he was going to have his brand new star, his new Lon Chaney. Boris Karloff was going to star. He passed that nine-page treatment off to John L. Balderston, whose name has come up in every episode, I think, so far since Dracula. I don't think he was involved in um, Phantom, right? So he's been sort of Universal's guy ever since Dracula. So anyway, John Balderston took that treatment, and then he actually had had some experience as a journalism. He worked for the New York World, and he had Covered King Tut's tomb back in 1922, so he was really knowledgeable about this sort of stuff, right? And then he took the treatment, moved the story to Egypt, changed the title character to Imhotep, and then changed a different plot point. Now, in the nine-page treatment, Calyastro was a character who, like his whole deal, was exacting revenge on the woman who had spurned him centuries ago, right? And so he was in modern day murdering women who resembled his old lover, which I think is kind of interesting. I, I really. Enjoy what John Balderston did with this, he changed that to Imhotep trying to revive his old love by finding a modern woman, killing her, and then reincarnating his, his love. Yeah,
1: so I recognized this part of the movie very well and was quite surprised. I mean, I sort of remembered it from the Brendan Fraser movie version as well, that they did this too when it started happening, but I was like, isn't this Dracula? Now, I think I said, like, I never read the novel, so I I came to find out it's not a plot thread from that, but it is sort of adapted later and integrated into further versions of Dracula, especially the Francis Ford Coppola version. Dracula is looking for Mina, his long-lost reincarnated love. The goal is for them to live as king and queen vampire. It got me very much more sort of engaged and interested in what was going on not only in the movie, but in the background and the history of the production.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that myself. I think as I mentioned in the Dracula episode, I also have not read the original Dracula novel. I've read like pieces of it, but I'm not intimately familiar with it. I have seen productions of Dracula that make use of this love through the ages kind of theme. In my research, I discovered John Balderston, in writing his script for The Mummy, let me just say he wrote about seven drafts of this story over the course of the summer of 1932. And in the process of doing that he very clearly drew from his Dracula script quite a bit but he also stole from himself a little bit his play Berkeley Square also features themes of love through the ages you know so this script is kind of a little bit Dracula a little bit of his own work and a little bit of like real life. If you were to, to break this film down into its basic beats and basic themes, so much of it is from Dracula. Now I'm going to try not to constantly compare The Mummy to Dracula throughout this whole episode. You know, it, it's going to become very obvious. I'll try to keep it to a minimum. Also by design, you know, he did basically lift almost the entire plot from Dracula for this film. Hey, I mean,
1: you know, that worked really well and they painted over it very successfully, I will say. You know, personally I think it, it's, it they did a good job.
0: If I'm going to take points off of the mummy for anything it's kind of gonna be because of that i wish the story had been a little more original and not so much a clear copy of dracula in so many ways but like you said they did successfully sort of repackage it in a way that i'm not really thinking about dracula so much throughout the film. I mean, I am because I do this podcast, and and, you know, I'm sort of watching these movies with such a critical eye that that I can't help but notice. But when I'm watching these for pleasure, I tend not to think about that so much.
1: Yeah, and this one is also sort of growing and expanding on a lot of the actual sort of filmmaking. Like, this camera never stops moving. And, you know, he was really testing those waters with Dracula when he was shooting that movie. Things we were saying sort of about the, the expressionism and how kept to the shadows like, specifically, you know, not not this sort of Maison scene, like everything is very otherwise normal looking. It's all about the lighting. It's cool in that way. Like, I think they, it was smart. But otherwise they might not have been able to focus and sort of push forward all their other techniques and stuff.
0: Yeah, I definitely find that Carl Freund grows as a filmmaker with this. Nice. I mentioned Carl Freund. This was his first film as director, his first feature film as a director. I think he had really impressed Universal with his work on Dracula. When it came time to do this film, I I guess on some level, he was a a clear choice to direct. I mean, this film really does play to his strengths in how natural he shoots everything. He has a really great way of taking these stories that are set in like a realistic modern setting and making them seem hyper-realistic.
1: Yeah, I was just looking up his filmography and the only other thing I seen him of his is, I think, Mad Love, which will come a little later. It's sort of a version of the Hands of orlac And in that, he, it is um, Peter Lorre plays a character that still haunts my nightmares specifically because of how he's shot. That comes all from him, from Carl Freund and everything. And it's just like the master of his craft, like doing his thing <laughs> and everything like that. So
0: I think it's interesting that Carl Freund didn't really direct Very much, he was a cinematographer for quite a long time before he got this gig. He directed eight films. He quit in 1935 after Mad Love and decided that, I guess, he just wanted to go back to cinematography. That's where his his true love was.
1: What you're sort of saying about letting the imagery work for itself, I guess, is something I was trying to maybe mention earlier as well, is that he just lets the Egyptian stuff be there. Like, he's not even really using it too much to any great degree it's just kind of like working on its own because of how fascinating it is right and it doesn't feel like at times you're watching stuff and it's like appropriation or anything like that like it feels like in good taste and in a, in all in good fun kind of thing and like that he's that these people are really interested in this subject matter and they were making horror movies at the time and it just fit really well this story of an ancient civilization it just feels like it was you know destined to to kind of be part of the universal canon. I attribute that to him as a director, not trying to really play up too much of that stuff. That really hit me this time around too, where I was trying to focus in on like, what is he doing? What's he bringing to this? And uh, I was just surprised that, yeah, that all of that uh, sort of imagery worked really well on its own.
0: We should note that even though Carl Freund was for the most part, he was a cinematographer uh, he directed this and this film did have its own cinematographer. Charles Stumer was the cinematographer on The Mummy and one has to wonder how you work as a cinematographer under Carl Freund. Like I don't don't know if the unions were a thing yet because today even if Carl Freund was directing a film he would not be allowed to touch that camera because of, of unions, right? So I don't know exactly how much work Charles Stumer did
1: himself that makes me think of uh, barry sonnenfeld right like he used to be the coen brothers cinematographer and then he went on to be a very successful director in his own right and it's like he must have had like a list of like here's what you're allowed to do with the camera camera cameraman, because i can't touch it it must drive a director crazy
0: here's another thing i learned speaking of carl Freund in the cinematography and with john L. balderston so there's a little bit of debate over just how much Carl Freund did as director on this film. If you look at John Balderston's final screenplay his his shooting script for The Mummy just about everything that you see on screen in terms of like how the camera moves and like the action that happens on screen is in that screenplay it almost seems as though Carl Freund could have just shot that movie as it was written and called it a day but I think that would give short shrift to Carl Freund a bit we understand his experience as a cinematographer he certainly would have known how to make this film and also john balderston this was his first screenplay so how would he have been that experienced to put all that stuff into the script so the prevailing theory there was about a month in pre-production towards the end where carl freund didn't have another project that he was working on so the theory is that carl freund collaborated with john balderston to further develop that script in like the in that remaining month before it production started properly but you know we have no way of knowing if that's the case or not all we know is you know what's been written down we know the script was pretty much all written out and we know Carl Freund directed. I like to believe that that's what happened, is that Carl Freund had a hand in the script writing process and was uncredited for that at the end of the film.
1: Interesting. I mean, because, you know, I've taken a few screenwriting classes in my time, and generally you're told not to write camera movement and screen direction, so much like that kind of thing, you know? I mean, you could obviously write the guy sits down in a chair, but you usually don't write and then the camera pushes in on him, you know? Like, you can, but you're taught kind of not to. So, him Being sort of an amateur at the time, I almost wonder if these were, uh, like, in there because he didn't know he wasn't supposed to put those things in or not. One way or the other, it still takes talent to bring it to life not every director would have been able to transcribe what was on that page you know I'm sure in the same way like not every artist can draw what Alan Moore wrote down as a script you know like it's just you need oh, some sure. kind of like yeah you need like the mastery of the creative to sort of to combine their strengths in, in that way
0: or another first with The Mummy is that it's the first film at least in the sound era of Universal's monster films that has a full score
1: yeah <laughs>
0: and that's also thanks to Carl Freund who insisted on having a full score even though much of this movie plays to silence much in the way dracula did and definitely that silence is used to great effect in the sequences in which it's employed but yeah it has a full score composed by james dietrich which i thought was really great now they still use that overture from Swan Lake in the very opening.
1: The same one from Dracula, right?
0: <laughs> right. And, then, and I also realized Universal used that in uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue as well. So they were getting a lot of mileage out of that piece from Swan Lake.
1: Yeah, because Universal, they're not just making monster movies right now. They're also making horror movies as well. You know, they're doing other stuff sort of like in line with what we're doing too, you know, except they just don't star Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and so on. It also was great to hear on the first commentary track, I listened to, which is a very cool conversation. Very interesting guys who know their shit. Some of the other music was even lifted from other silent films and stuff, and I recognized that during the flashback sequences and Mm -hmm, everything, mm -hmm. so that was really cool as well. Yeah, after you watch this, at least check out that first commentary track. It was really good.
0: So let's get into the cast a little bit. So of course we've got Boris Karloff as Ardith Bey, as Imhotep, as the mummy in the first, you know, 10-15 minutes of this film. I mean, he's working his ass off let's talk about that makeup in that first 10 15 minutes he sat for jack pierce for eight hours to get his entire body in makeup he's fully wrapped now keep that in mind right i was watching so i was watching this last night and i timed it the amount of time boris karloff himself is on camera in that first scene is no more than 40 seconds
1: so it's almost like he only needed to put it on once
0: you can see Imhotep in the background of that sequence quite a bit. And now for much of it, it was a dummy that they had wrapped. And, you know, it's not Carloff, but for those close-ups, for the famous close-up of, you know, the eyes opening... Uh-huh. And then the uh, the tilt down to his arms, that's all Karloff. I'm pretty sure that the hand that we see enter the frame and take the scroll of Thoth, pretty sure that's Karloff's hand. So if that is not Karloff, then you can cut down my 40 seconds to about 35 seconds. So I read somewhere that Carl Lemley Jr. and Carl Freund very much disagreed over how this sequence should be shot. Carl Lamley really wanted to feature the mummy in this sequence. Like he wanted to see a lot of Karloff. I mean Karloff spent eight hours under Jack Pierce, having the um cotton and the uh, collodion and all that shit just stuck to his face.
1: It was gonna be the poster too, I'm sure. So it's like this is what they're coming for, you know? And and before I knew that we weren't gonna see this makeup again, I was like, This is brilliant. Like this is one of the best teases we're definitely going to see this mummy in his final form at some point, but this opening of like teasing around it and everything was, was great, but he never comes back like that. So I kind of got, you know, it was a bummer.
0: (laughs) I kind of love Carl Freund's restraint in this scene. Like imagine the restraint it took to not show that mummy.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. It would be like, as if uh, the shark worked for jaws and Spielberg still decided to shoot it the way he shot it. Right. Like (laughs) he he has the working shark and he's not even showing it.
0: Yeah. I think this scene as, as much as Carl, Carl Lemley would have preferred this scene to feature that mummy more. I really love the way Carl Freund shot it and, and cut it. It plays better because of it. If we were to have seen that mummy more, it wouldn't have the same effect, exactly like you said, with Jaws. Less is more in this case, 100%. And as, as disappointed as I was as a kid that this is all the mummy we get in a movie called The Mummy, as an adult, I am very happy that-, that
1: Dude, <laughs> as an adult, I feel like this is one of like the greatest, what you would probably now call greatest trolls in film history right? where it's like come for the mummy but then you get like just this really old guy for the rest of the time part of it maybe was they knew that they couldn't really keep him in that makeup the entire movie like even as they were writing it I almost get the sense that they're like we can't put Karloff through like this like he's still right. had a very impressive makeup that I'm sure took a very long time to apply but it's noticeably him and I think that was a smarter move to make and I think the movie is just grabs you when when And it takes this crazy left turn 10 years later. And you know, this guy is the mummy, but he's not the mummy anymore. Like what is like, it really is like, what is going on? It sort of becomes like a very interesting mystery.
0: Yes, for sure. Let's go down the cast list a little more. We've got Zita Johan as Helen Grosvenor. She was a Hungarian-born actress who came to the United States and was huge on Broadway. At the time, she had been cast. She was a megastar on Broadway and was just sort of starting to get work in movies. She had only made a handful of movies before The Mummy, I believe, and and really only made a handful after. She was really not into the whole Hollywood scene.
1: That's unfortunate because she is electric. Dan, you know... just the reference last episode, I feel like she's kind of a Betty Davis. Like she's got those Betty Davis eyes. She sort of has the same sort of type of features. Um, she almost looks like she walked off of an Archie comic, like that Dan DiCarlo drew her or something like <laughs> yes. that. Like she's just got these perfectly inked features. And and she's amazing in this. She has basically she's the second lead you know she's the only female in the entire movie and mm-hmm. she carries it like crazy. I think she's awesome.
0: And one thing I learned about her is that she was really into the occult and reincarnation oh, sweet. And, and all of that in real life. So uh, it was a little bit of um, <laughs> fiction meeting reality there right? So yeah she she was really into this stuff anyway and, I, and you're right she is electric in this film. I, it's hard to imagine anybody else playing Helen although again in my research I discovered that the other person who had been considered or at least was suggested by John Balderston to play Helen was Catherine Hepburn
1: oh interesting
0: I don't know that Catherine Hepburn was ever seriously considered but her name was thrown out there who's to say what this movie could have been like with Catherine Hepburn I will say this with respect to Zito Johan Zito Johan just has this sort of ethnic quality to her like she looks like she belongs in this movie in a way that Catherine Hepburn may not
1: have definitely like with those exaggerated features. She's got a very distinct look that I think works perfectly. Now, look, also I feel like what this role kind of requires is a bit of sex appeal, and she's got it from top to bottom as well. Like She mm-hmm. kind of glides through this movie like a serpent, you know, to kind of keep with uh, the Egyptian sort of imagery and things like that, and owns the role really well.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I don't know if you've heard anything about this, but I, I've heard many stories about Zita Johan clashing with Karl Freund on set. Are you aware of this?
1: No, I did not pick this up.
0: There are many stories told second and third hand, so who knows how much truth there is to them. But according to sources, with Carl Freund directing his first film, I mean, mean, this came straight from Zita Johan, is that he was looking for a scapegoat should this movie not work out. He wanted uh, someone to pin it on Were the Mummy to be uh, a failure. So in production, he really kind of pinned all this stuff on Zita Johan and tried to make her out to be very difficult to work with. There's a couple stories. One that for sure happened is when they were shooting Princess Anxanaman's multiple lives, Throughout the centuries there was a scene where she was to play like a christian martyr in ancient rome who was going to be sacrificed to lions and he protected the entire crew he protected himself he protected pretty much everybody but he had Zita johan go out onto this set with Real lions, and you know, by that point she was like so exhausted that she just didn't give a shit anymore. She's like, "Fine, fuck it, I'll do it." And uh, you know, the lions didn't really care about her. I probably, and I think she said something about how like she just didn't seem very appealing because of how exhausted she was. The lions could sense that. So there's that. But also, there was a sequence supposedly where he was going to make her do this scene topless, and you know, without skipping a beat, as if she knew what he was doing. She said that if he Could get it past the censors, she'd be happy to do it naked. She called his bluff. He knew he couldn't get it past the censors, and then they moved on. She sort of became the whipping boy, or, you know, in this case, you know, maybe the whipping woman for Carl Freund. Uh, I don't know entirely how much truth there is to how much of a a taskmaster Carl Freund was for her, or if he was legitimately trying to make a scapegoat of her, but supposedly they really just did not get along on set, which just reading about it sounds completely exhausting.
1: Yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean I always hear just about how actors are cattle especially back then you know and how what they did to poor Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney as kids and stuff to keep them going right and and all these things so him coming from the like German school of filmmaking to begin with where he's probably just yelling at people all day long to do shit right like and his method is just like I speak you listen do I say kind of stuff is where I'm sort of feeling like he might be coming from at this point trying to explain him self not only to like an American actor but like yet alone a, f- a woman yet alone one who's supposed to be like the star of this movie like I could imagine he was having an inferiority problem on set or something if it came to if it came to that I have not heard about any of this, this is all news to me um, but it's nice to know that she tried to handle it like a consummate professional while he was just a, a big old baby
0: yeah that is like the one constant is that you know should all these stories be true is that Zita Johan she was a professional actress and you know, she dealt with it as professionally as possible.
1: I mean, not to bring it back, but I am watching Doom Patrol at the moment, and there's a character on there, Rita, who is a uh, movie star from like the 40s and stuff, and what like her backstory and the kind of casting couch type of shit that she uh, had to go through, like I could only imagine what really happened, right? Like, that's a whole other side of the story, but yeah, that's very unfortunate. Got a great performance, though. She used it, i tell you that much.
0: Well, 100%. And she's another one who, her career was short-lived, in terms of movies in Hollywood. Uh, She made seven films in the 1930s from 1931 to 1934. She did have a small role in 1986 in a film called Raiders of the Living Dead. I have no idea what that is.
1: I mean, it sounds like a mummy ripoff that they got her to sort of star cameo in. Like, we got the girl from the original mummy in our fourth-rate, not even Roger Corman version.
0: (laughs) And by all accounts, she was as much of a theatrical diva as you could expect her to be until the day she died. So I, I love hearing that. Like she was one of those big, larger than life, almost Norma Desmond types, you know?
1: Excellent. I can't wait till we get to Invisible Man because there's an actress in that who shows up in the movie Titanic.
0: That's right. Yeah, I realized as I was doing this research that a lot of these actors were still alive when I was a kid. You know, a Mm, lot of them made it to the early to mid 90s. I would have zero idea who they were. You know, I would have had certainly no appreciation for who they were. But it's cool to know that like I was on this planet at the same time as Zita Johan, at least for a little bit.
1: Yeah, I often think about that when I was like, oh, my dad was alive when Elvis walked the earth. (laughs)
0: Yep. Continuing down the cast list, we've got David Manners, who we remember from Dracula as John Harker.
1: I didn't remember him at all. (laughs) <laughs> because he, he comes across with a completely different energy from what I can tell. Uh, I, I was just calling him uh, Dr. Handsome, also. Like, I just didn't recognize him, and I thought he played the part really well, too.
0: That's interesting because I, I found David Manners to be really great in like maybe the first half of The Mummy or so. But then once he meets Helen, he kind of falls right back into that John Harker mold. Kind of loses all of the things that I found interesting about Frank Wemple.
1: Yeah, I kind of just had to attribute that to sort of a story where, like you say, they're kind of cribbing off of Dracula to begin with. We got the same actor. He needs to fall in love. If or if he's not already in love, we need to get it across that he's sort of into her, extremely like devoted to her even. He does kind of drop out a bit. It becomes more about her and Ardith.
0: I don't think it's just unfortunate for David Manners because he was also in Dracula, right? If this had been a different actor, I wouldn't maybe have that same criticism, but because it's the same actor playing both John Harker and Frank Wemple and kind of becoming almost that useless man in love with the doomed woman you know, he's playing the same role. And I wish they had given Frank a little more to do in the second half of this film.
1: Yeah, I hear you, because you'd like to see him get revenge for the death of his father, for the kidnapping of his girlfriend.
0: Right, that's the thing. It's not like he doesn't have a reason to go after Imhotep, right? Like, he should be incensed after the death of his father. Like, now it's personal. And yet, all he can think about is being in love with Helen and and being with her and hoping that she survives this so they can get married and have kids.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's hard too because it's also kind of great how she is able to just overcome what's happening to her and win the day on her own basically right like she takes control at the end of the movie and, and is able to uh, defeat mummy by herself. So if there was some kind of thing where they did it together, I don't know. But I hear what you're saying. He could have been explored a bit more. Especially since, again, Dan, we're here for how long? An hour and 15 (laughs) minutes? Let's get an extra five minutes of it with Frank and see what else is happening. Let's see him, like, gear up Rambo style. Grab a whip, like Indy. I don't know. Just
0: something, yeah. We got his dad, Arthur Byron, as Sir Joseph Wemple, who I really like in this film. He's almost the Van Helsing, except we do have Edward Van Sloan in here he is dr muller but he is he's basically Van Helsing yeah even more so than he was in Frankenstein now we've talked about how he's basically playing van Helsing in, in all three of these movies but in at least in Frankenstein he is killed in that he doesn't have all the answers he's really just kind of skeptical but in the mummy he's back to being kind of the know-it-all guy who believes in the occult and he gives credence to it and even though everybody else the other intellectuals in the room kind of laugh off his his ideas he He's very convinced that this, these things are possible. So now he's back to basically being Van Helsing. I think he's great here. I don't know specifically what his relationship is with Helen, although they state that she's his patient. But, you know, we don't really know what Dr. Muller is a doctor of. He's not a doctor of archaeology, per se, but he seems to have a great knowledge of Egypt and Egyptology. You know, so I just, I just love that Edward Van Sloan is back in the saddle as our doctor hero.
1: Absolutely. Like, he's the all-star so far. Like, he is my favorite as well. I really love the cadence of his voice. I was was trying to work an impression of him out earlier, but I couldn't nail it down, so I'm not going to do it. But, like, (laughs) he's just got this very relaxed, distinct way of speaking. Dr. Muller, yes, he's very Van Helsing. Again, like, three for three. As soon as they, in the opening scene, when he's like, if we open this box, there's a chance that Mummy can come to life. I say we bury this box as deep as possible and forget where we put it so that we never have to deal with any of this. And then even later, he's like, all right, this guy's very sketchy. We have to find out what he's up to. Here's all of my amulets, trinkets, and things going on. And like... (laughs) it's so cool though because i feel like modern day characters that do that are so clunky like there's just such a grace in his performance all the time and he's just able to deliver like this kind of nonsense and it sounds so academic there might have been trying to go for a bit of like a sigmund freud thing i don't want to say he's like a psychoanalyst or anything but that's sort of a thing i was getting from him and zita johan their relationship together like why he she was his patient and all that kind of stuff and And then just quickly, the stuff with Sir Joseph. Right. So Sir Joseph is Frank's father. And they're this father-son archaeological duo. I couldn't help (laughs) but think of Henry and Henry Jr., you know, Indiana and his dad. Like this predates that by quite a while. But one had to think like George Lucas saw this movie. This is definitely something in his wheelhouse. So who knows if that's a little bit that was cribbed down the line as well.
0: Yeah. The more I think about the comparisons between, you know, this mummy and the Indiana Jones films, you know, we've got, like you said, father-son archaeologists we've got mystical trinkets and tombs that their magic is real these uh archaeologists these men of science have to navigate a world of magic and mysticism yeah i think i think the more you think about those comparisons the more legitimate they seem i never even really thought about how indiana jones could have drawn from this movie specifically once you mentioned that i think you sent me a a, a dm comparing them i couldn't stop thinking about it i think you're 100 spot on with that
1: It just jumped out at me, and it, again, made the experience, like, more engrossing, right? To feel like, oh, there's a bit more importance to the sort of history of this material. You know what I'm saying? Like, it echoes even deeper than I imagined.
0: Right. To address Edward Van Sloan, I was going to say that, like, I feel so safe. Anytime he is on screen, by this point, we're three movies in. Is there anybody who doesn't trust Edward Van Sloan (laughs) audience-wise? I mean, I have to imagine that audiences went to see The Mummy and were like screaming at the screen. Like, listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. (laughs) This is the third time. Just listen to the man and we'll all go home. And of course, uh, you know, no one does and it becomes a whole thing. But I do love every time he's on screen because like I said, I feel... Instantly safer, like somebody who knows what's going on is there and is going to stop the evil from getting me.
1: It's so funny, like in the next 20 years, it looks like he'll make almost like a hundred damn movies like in Hollywood and stuff. I would love to go through a bunch of these, like a fistful of them and see if he's constantly playing that type of guy. Like the guy you could always be like, oh, thank God this guy's in the movie. I could get behind this guy and know everything's going to be okay in the end kind of thing. Like, did he get typecast for the rest of his career?
0: I really don't love to see actors get typecast. Like when it happens these days, it makes me a little bit sad, you know, but I really can't envision him as anybody but van helsing
1: one thing i learned from the commentary track is that he will play van helsing again right in one of these universal movies so that's awesome
0: we are not done with edward van sloan as van helsing that is for sure seeing him play these characters right so he plays van helsing twice but then he also kind of plays van helsing-esque characters so so far we've seen him two other times like i have to imagine that that was sort of the inspiration for making van helsing kind of the hub. For Universal Monsters, like when they made the movie Van Helsing. And then uh, I haven't watched the show. There's that show where they, oh, right. they made Van Helsing a woman. I, I haven't watched that at all. So I don't know how they incorporate the other characters.
1: Yeah, I think that she's supposed to be a descendant of the original but I'm not positive. But yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I've seen the commercial,
0: at least for the Hugh Jackman movie. You know, I have to imagine that Edward Van Sloan being this guy who shows up in Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy that had to have inspired somebody to be like, you know what, what if he's just this monster hunter and all these characters are in the same universe and we're just going to make him the hero? That would make absolute sense to me. I'm going to look that up and maybe there's something on it.
1: Yeah, you know, I hope we get to actually explore that movie more in depth one day. But I will say I agree with that sort of thesis or that hypothesis that you... forth there, it makes total sense to me considering that that movie wants to be within the canon of these old Universal movies universe, you know? Like, it's trying to say it's almost like a side sequel to everything that's going on here, and then even when you get into the end of the story of the Hugh Jackman Van Helsing, like, there's a a sort of older, deeper connection between him and Dracula, you know? So, like, that's even kind of something we wish was more hinted at in the original movie, too. So, these guys, I feel like, were thinking on the same wavelength that I think like we're tapping into now
0: we've got Bramwell Fletcher as Ralph Norton who has a very small role he is most famous for the the laughing crazy archaeologist who witnesses the mummy at the beginning of this film
1: so one thing I wanted to say about the Bramwell Fletcher first of all we used that line in the opening to the show it gives me chills every single time when he starts laughing and he says you should have seen his face I can't take it like it's just something so demented and and then I was like, you know what? This guy is like, they couldn't get Dwight Fry for a day. Like he's totally doing Dwight Fry as Renfield. But I, I just feel the connection more now to Dracula and all that kind of stuff. And I like it more. You know, I think it's cool how they're just like, not unabashedly, but they're like, we own that. That's ours. So we should be able to crib ourselves if we want to. It's like, it's a formula. Like, let's see if it, if we can apply it to another aesthetic. And it did work.
0: The last actor I want to make a point to highlight him is Noble Johnson, who plays the Nubian servant in this. Now, to watch this film in, in 2021, you know, this character is a bit problematic in that he's literally just a African slave. But I do want to mention Noble Johnson for being an African-American actor at the time, who is great in this with what little he's given to work with. But, you know, many film lovers would also know him as the leader of the, the tribe in King Kong. And then he was also in The Most dangerous game he was like an african-american actor at the time who you know he wasn't getting great roles but he was he was a working actor at the time and i think that by itself is really cool
1: uh it's interesting too i guess because they still had to sort of darken him up for the screen i know some of that darkening was going on at the time you know even if you were a black actor right it's crazy that king kong is next year for these filmgoers like yep they're they're starting to lose their mind at the movie movie theater already with these moths and then king kong like come on dude like i watch that movie now and it blows my mind like i would have been traumatized you know as an adult watching that in 1933
0: but this movie it does have its problems with i think more than a couple white actors playing black servants, if I'm not mistaken. But I do like that this movie gave Noble Johnson an, an opportunity.
1: One thing that like I thought was really interesting about Karloff, you know, because he's playing, for all intent and purposes, someone from Egypt, right? Uh, and he's a right. British guy. But his father is British and Indian. And that he was actually sort of more dark-skinned in real life than people are aware. So that it wasn't that far off.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm glad you brought that up because I, I did know that it was somewhere living somewhere in the back of my mind, and I completely forgot to mention that. So yeah, even Boris Karloff, we think of as being an English actor, you know, was half Indian. So
1: when you think of like Alec Guinness is in Lawrence of Arabia, right? And, and I think of Alec Guinness, and I'm like, well, there's like one of the whitest British guys like that, that, yes. that, that walk the earth, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so like it just it, it plays a little better knowing that about Karloff for me, as opposed to just be like, well, this movie isn't as problematic. Like, yes, we have Noble Johnson, but like, at least on the other end, like our lead is sort of more appropriate. Right, right.
0: Let's get into the plot of this, unless you had anything you wanted to add about the cast.
1: Not about the cast, but I just had a quick question about the story inception. Did you hear anything about the sort of influences of Arthur Conan Doyle? There's something about lot number 249, which was eventually made into an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. It's from like the late 1800s, and it's about, you know, a guy gets a box and it contains a mummy and it comes to life and it starts like chasing and killing people. Uh, At least that's what happened in the version I saw in Tales from the Dark Side. I think there was also a short story called The Ring of Toth.
0: The Ring of Thoth, yeah.
1: Yeah, that was also used as well. So, like, I just thought that was great because I know Arthur Conan Doyle, you know,
0: Yeah, there's no official confirmation that either of those stories had any direct influence on The Mummy. But people have suggested that because of how similar some of them are. uh... But not
1: as much as like Cagliostro's influence, which seems to be the strongest.
0: Right. That's where the whole thing started. So that is reasonably the the most obvious influence when you watch this finished film. But yeah, there are certainly elements in in Arthur Conan Doyle that could have been drawn in, in addition to everything else. So yeah, I did read something about that. So I'm glad you, uh, you mentioned mention that as well. Okay, so The Mummy begins with a really great title card. I didn't expect to uh, be talking about a title sequence because typically they're just sort of standard. But this one uses a little miniature, which I thought was really neat.
1: That was great. It's almost like this fake 3D. Like it made me think of CGI right out of the gate because of the way the camera and everything sort of twists and turns. Like it's it must be on some weird turntable. Something's going on with that. It looks awesome. It's so cool.
0: Yeah, most of the title cards have been pretty standard for the time but yeah i really enjoy how this one does it a little bit differently i mean it's not that big a deal it's just a fun aesthetic choice that i really appreciate i'm always a big fan of miniatures anytime they get
1: employed in films
0: as opposed to cgi these days if, if someone's using miniatures i really i really get
1: into that did you not get like a viewmaster sort of like vibe off of it almost like it because it, it, i feel like what it was trying to really go for was 3d yeah uh, so like i thought that was really effective so
0: yeah especially the way the camera like whips around from the side yeah yeah so- so then we get a little bit of kind of a precursor as to what the Scroll of Thoth is. Instead of like a quote or, or or something else that's ominous, they decide to go with a little bit of an explanation of the Scroll of Thoth, which reads: "This is the Scroll of Thoth. Herein are set down the magic words by which Isis raised Osiris from the dead. O Amon Ra, O gods of gods, death is but the doorway to a new life. We live today. We shall live again in many forms. We shall return. O mighty one,
1: I live." I live, I die, I live again. Witness me fury road
0: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i think i think that was a smart move to put that right at the top it lets the audience know exactly what they need to know to appreciate this film because it is different from what's come before it in in that it has a um, foreign magic that we might not be uh, familiar with it's not totally easy to explain necessarily so what we understand right off the bat there's a scroll of Thoth that was used by isis to raise osiris from the dead and it's got magic abilities to restore life then we go to a 1921 field expedition. It's a British archaeology dig out in the middle of the desert of Egypt. We know already that they have found this mummy. It is Imhotep. He is the high priest of the Temple of the Sun at Karnak. Based on what they can tell from his sarcophagus, he had died pretty unpleasantly. There was some kind of struggle. And they've also noticed that none of his uh, organs were removed, which suggests that he was buried alive. And that some of the markings on the inside of the sarcophagus, which would help usher him into the afterlife, had been scraped away to suggest that he would die again in the afterlife as well, which, whew, that's some heavy stuff.
1: You are not resting in peace, basically, is what's happening with this guy, right? And to be buried alive, like they're just painting such a gruesome picture that I'm able in my head to already like, see what we're actually gonna see later is awesome. We're gonna kind of get a version of that in a flashback, but I love how this sort of, this little chapter, I guess, that starts off the movie and just sets all the stakes and the pace and we get sort of like a lot of nice exposition and we know what our MacGuffin's gonna be. It's a great little reel.
0: Yeah, and I I love the characters in this scene of course. We've got Dr. Muller, the Edward Van Sloan character but the more important characters in this scene are Sir Joseph Wemple and Ralph Norton. These are the two primary archaeologists and now they are both very professional knowledgeable archaeologists. I think that the film does a really great job of establishing a respect for both characters. But what's cool about them is that one is older, has been doing this for years. One is younger and is much, much more impulsive and is more willing to take risks. So you've got this struggle, you know, they have this, this mummy, they have a a box that they have to open up and he just kind of wants to get in there and learn as much as possible. Whereas Dr. Wemple is much more calm and studious and patient. I love that give and take in that scene.
1: It's a great contrast, and they're still doing this uh, story beat to this day where it's like you know the old wise guy knows what's best you better listen to him and then it's the young brash dude who has to come ahead and like challenge things and oh shit like he unlocked hell on earth or whatever like he you know he screwed up I feel like there's still it's great like it always works but it's so clear cut here and so well done and again it's not like they're throwing it in your face it's just like oh like you should be able to pick up on this like there's this trope that you know the young brash go-getter and then there's the older wiser professor and stuff and so it makes perfect sense why he, sh- he would like overreach and be ambitious and all that kind of stuff
0: There's a lot of information to convey in this scene and I think they do like this script does a really great job of telling us a lot about these two characters while also giving us the information we need to understand what's going on. Um, this is such an efficient scene and I, and I and I really love it In addition to the sarcophagus that they've found they've also gotten this, this box which has a, uh, a warning on top of it and the warning reads, death, eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket in the name of Amon ra king of the gods. And of course, Dr. Muller rightfully is like, do not open this box like you said, you know, get rid of it, you know, don't even mess with this shit. And meanwhile, both archaeologists, both Sir Joseph and Ralph Norton, both intend to open that box, right? It's just that Ralph doesn't have the patience to wait until he's told to
1: do it. Well, Dr. Muller basically, he goes to Sir Joseph and he's like, let me talk to you outside the tent for just a moment. Before you're going to open that box, just hear me out really quickly. But he goes outside and he's like, bury it immediately. You have to get rid yes. of everything here and leave no trace. Like, he might as well just be like, burn it all and like wipe your minds and stuff. And then while they're outside, the cat just got too curious. He just could not wait two minutes because he has his opportunity. He's, well, what would you do? You know, you're you're alone. You seize the moment. So that's what he did
0: yeah for sure and of course we've got this incredible sequence where ralph opens the box unrolls the scroll of thoth translates a piece of it and then we see the mummy boris karloff in full makeup the eyes slowly open i don't think i've ever seen anybody open their eyes slower than boris karloff does in this scene i feel like they must have slowed down the footage too because it's just inhumanly slow
1: it lingers and it should, it's supposed to, like you said, this has sort of been, again, like I feel it's like one of those really fast paced talking newsroom movies almost at times because they're dropping so many words, you know, like ISIS and, and Amunra and like Karnak and all the, and like, I'm kind of having trouble following a little bit of that kind of stuff until I just let it, you know, wash over me. Uh, it all kind of means the same thing. And then it's like the focus is on the fucking mummy and it's like, they draw that shit out for a minute until he opens his eyes, you know? Then they're gonna cut away immediately, like, we're never gonna see him again. (laughs) He goes bye-bye forever. For me, it was really interesting. I was like, trying to take a moment and like, digest all of this information and the movie just like, wasn't gonna let me. It was like, nope, here comes the mummy. Like, this guy's gonna lose his mind. It's gonna be ten years later. (laughs) Like, what is this movie doing? (laughs) From a technical point
0: of view, I find that scene like, at least up until Karloff wakes up, you know, the whole scene of... Opening the box and, uh, and unrolling the scroll. It's a very drawn out sequence, but there's no music. I wrote a note watching that scene that the silence in the like there's there's barely any um, sound effects. It's it's just so quiet. The the silence is just so oppressive that like, I'm not stopping to think about how slowly this scene is being drawn out. It's just my heart's in my throat. What's gonna happen? Then of course, once the mummy wakes up, the scene just kind of stampedes toward his exit. Yeah, I love so much about this scene from the high contrast, the deep shadows, The silence and then Karloff slowly waking up taking forever and then of course uh, he takes the scroll and leaves Ralph Norton like he breaks him essentially you know he, he screams but then descends into a fit of laughter which as you said is is incredibly uh terrifying like it's not like a funny laughter that is like a really upsetting laughter <laughs> and he's so good at it
1: yeah great actor in that part like truly believed the laughter of a madman and definitely no sanity in that no joy or anything I mean just chilling.
0: Yeah, so that's the end of our... Prologue. We jump forward to 1932. The British expedition is still in Egypt 11 years later. We meet up with Sir Joseph's son Frank, who is now part of the expedition. We find out a couple things. We find out his father, Sir Joseph, is back in England while the expedition uh, continues. And we also find out that Ralph Norton went crazy and died laughing in a straitjacket after his incident in 1921.
1: I love that this movie is going to have a time jump and a flashback. I I was like very down with this like 11 years later like this is interesting and then the, the son is sort of picking up where the dad left off in the uh, expedition uh, in a way well we come to find out that he has a benefactor who seems a little familiar <laughs> if you ask me
0: right so in that scene we meet a new character we think Artith Bay who looks surprisingly like Boris Karloff. He is under less severe makeup. He's wearing a fez and is supposedly, you know, just a, a citizen of Egypt. And he has been guiding this new British expedition.
1: They're looking for his long-lost love's tomb, right? Like, her body is basically what the excavation is all about.
0: I don't think it's clear specifically what they're looking for. All they know is that they've been digging. They haven't found anything. Ardith Bey shows up promising them the most sensational find since that of Tutankhamun. He promises to show them where to dig to find the tomb of the princess Anksanaman. I don't know that they were looking for her specifically, but that's what he's promising them.
1: Uh, okay. At first I thought that uh, when he showed up, like he was um, he was like, I've been the one sort of funding this joint. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, oh, nice to meet you. But I guess that's not the case. However, he turns out to be sort of the case when he's like, oh, you guys haven't found anything. Let me show you where to dig.
0: Yeah, it's been 11 years and we don't really get much of an explanation as to why it's taken that long for him to finally make a move.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's got to have taken him a while to sort of like accumulate a bit of wealth, to sort of look a bit more normal, right? Like, I would imagine that audiences totally would have bought the concept that we're looking at a guy who's like, you know, 200 years old or something. Like, this is is probably great old man makeup for the time. I kind of dig it. Like, I buy it. Like, there's something sort of off about him but you could also accept that maybe you know he's got a disease or something I don't know like there's just like a skin problem going on with this guy (laughs) not necessarily that he's you know thousands of years old or whatever
0: right the British expedition kind of desperate at this point it's either they try this or they take their few findings and they go home they decide to dig where Ardith Bay tells them to dig and of course they find the tomb of Amen. all of those artifacts are dug up and taken to the Cairo Museum museum which there's a fun moment there between frank and his father because of course sir joseph has to come back out to cairo to examine these new findings there's a great moment where frank seems disappointed that you know they had done all the work to find this stuff and then the cairo museum gets to keep it and of course sir joseph being being the the pure archaeologist is you know we do this for science not for you know not for profit so you know i just I, i love that little
1: moment there It belongs in the museum. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I like the dynamic, the father and son thing going here. Like, I feel like, you know, we've had issues. Like, those have sort of been the, uh, like, that was the problem with Frankenstein. He didn't get along with his dad, right? Like, so he tried to be a better father by making a son, I guess. But, like, it kind of goes back. You know, even Dracula can be seen as, like, you know, an abusive parental figure of some type I just feel like that's a root of like psychological damage that they're trying to mine for horror movies and you know even to this day but I feel like it's nice in this to see a father and son like working together to figure this out back in Dracula it was Mina and her father but like he was too busy running the asylum to even really know what was going on.
0: All of Ansunamen's tomb, her belongings, with everything, sort of now in the safety of the Cairo Museum, where Artith Bay can easily access them. Now his plan really starts to be set into motion. Right, he he was able to exploit the British expedition to get all this stuff out of the earth, and now it's safely above ground where he can access it. There's a great moment here where he is viewing Angksanaman's the sarcophagus and all of her things, and then the camera cuts from her sarcophagus to a weird side scroll of the city. It's like they just ran a piece of paper with a city on it across the camera, instead of a legitimate pan.
1: It was almost like a Edgar Wright White. Almost. That like streams across the screen i noticed that too i was like what is this like a flash sideways or something and it's like sure enough across the city here's what's going on right
0: i don't know if you picked up on this but that transition connects oxenamon's sarcophagus to helen grosvenor
1: which is brilliant genius that must have been a storyboard you know like that's yes. awesome
0: i love that we as the audience don't really know what that means yet but we as monster fans certainly know what that means so then we get to know who helen grosvenor is she is the daughter of an english governor of the Sudan and she lives in Cairo staying with Dr. Muller. As you suggested, he may be a sort of a psychiatric doctor and, and that's their relationship. But the film never really tells us explicitly what that relationship is.
1: You know what I want that relationship to be now though, now that I've been thinking about it, is uh I want her to be the next Van Helsing. Like she is his ward. Like they are like Batman and Robin almost, where it's like he's teaching her everything he knows about monster hunting and she's like in his charge almost like a laura croft almost i don't know (laughs) kind of situation she could be the new van helsing on the sci-fi channel tv show
0: i feel like there's a closer parallel between her and like moon knight you know
1: (laughs) yeah no absolutely especially all this like stuff taking place in cairo the multiple personalities yeah this is very close to that as well which i believe was also sort of a riff on indiana jones nice
0: So now we get to know who Helen is. She's at this sort of swanky party in Cairo. She mentions, you know, how much she kind of hates the modern Cairo and wishes to get back to like the real Egypt, the old Egypt, which is a nice bit
1: of foreshadowing. As soon as she's introduced, he's already, the mummy that is, is already kind of doing his magic, right? Like he's unrolled a scroll and started chanting in the corner of a museum somewhere, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah. while she's at that party is when he really starts to revive Aung San
1: Yeah, so it's almost like this lingering precursor to her emerging personality coming forth from the past. And that was really cool, too, and everything. You know, I'd almost forgotten about the concept of reincarnation altogether. And it was nice to just bring that back into my the forefront of my mind again and everything. I think that's a really fascinating concept. And I think it's uh, used here in a very interesting way, the idea of these sort of um, souls like throughout time locked together almost like a cloud atlas kind of thing you know I'll find you in a thousand years
0: <laughs> totally Art of Bay doesn't know that yet you know all he's planning to do is, is revive the mummy of his long lost love so as he's reading from the scroll of Thoth she is suddenly entranced by his words she's hypnotized and leaves that party and goes immediately to the museum where he is and as she's banging on the door Frank Wimple Frank Wimple is there at the museum and notices this now he doesn't know who she is yet but when she faints he takes her back to the care of Dr. Muller and Ardith Bay is interrupted as he is trying to complete this ceremony one of the the museum guards appears and suddenly puts a stop to the ceremony he blows out the oil lamp and then strangles or you know we don't see how he kills the guard you know that's one thing that I find interesting about this movie is that Ardith Bay makes a point to tell Dr. Wemple that he does not like to be touched You know, he appears very fragile. And even Karloff himself is playing this role very still and as if he's going to, like, blow away with a stiff breeze.
1: That's totally true. He's extremely stiff. Intentionally, like, all of his movements are extremely measured. It's almost like he is made of... Glass, right? But it is like, yeah, if you touch him, he's just gonna like kind of crumble.
0: Yeah, we don't see what he does to the guard, but you know, he he kills him somehow in the darkness. And we find out later that another guard heard the noise or whatever and showed up, and Ardith Bay had to leave. The point being, Ardith Bay leaves behind the scroll of thought.
1: He has not finished the ritual, you know, it's not done yet. It's sort of uh, been interrupted.
0: Not only has he not completed the ceremony, but he has lost the scroll. So now we go back to Helen, who wakes up at Dr. Muller's with Frank. Of course, this is the beginning of the love affair between the two of them. Between you and me, as I sort of hinted at earlier, this is sort of the part that I'm least interested in, because I don't think David Manners is the most interesting leading Man, as a love interest, you know,
1: it took me back to Phantom, Phantom of the Opera, because if you remember in that, like, her boyfriend was not gonna stand for the Phantom taking his girl away from him or anything, and like, truly fought to get her back, and all this stuff. It was like super chivalrous, and everything it was almost like a musketeer. Yeah, yeah, he reminded me of, and we're not getting any of that with these love interests for any of these movies, you know. It, I mean, granted, I think Frankenstein's fiance was the most. Proactive out of all the significant others so far, but yeah, it's kind of a bummer, you know. Especially since this is something they could have remedied from Dracula, right? Like they're working on trying to like not do it again, but sort of improve upon. So this is one place where it sort of dropped the ball.
0: And so after the guard is discovered, the scroll of Thoth is taken to the Wemples, and Artif Bey comes seeking that scroll and that's when he gets to meet Helen for the first time this is about halfway through the film when they finally meet which I think is a really long time to put your two lead characters together
1: it, it is but it's also sort of gonna be the rest of the movie like I think of the halfway point in most movies right and it's usually where things kind of like really kick in the gear you know you're like in the middle of it like a, like every kind of half hour like I guess a, an incident is supposed to propel the film forward but this might be when they land on the asteroid or something like that in armageddon
0: <laughs> i also have to remember this movie's like an hour and 10 minutes it's not long a half hour is not that long really it just to think of this moment happening in the middle of the film seems like a, a long time but yeah, you're right you're right it is only a half hour so when helen is pulled up at dr muller's recovering ardith bay appears and seems to hypnotize dr muller's servant and places him under his control much like Dracula did. This is when he meets Helen for the first time and in their meeting she seems to feel familiar with. uh, There's a moment where it's just the two of them they're getting to know each other and uh, she's kind of in this trance-like state and mentions that she's never felt so alive. More hints to her previous lives.
1: Yes. Yeah, very cool sequence. Like very interesting. Cause we know that he's up to no good at this point. We know that something's going on with her and he's at her house. Like he's invading, like this is gonna be super dangerous. <laughs> you know, he's taking control of the slave guy. Like it's nuts.
0: And, and the scene that plays out just after this, it's one of the scenes that is uh, most explicitly drawn right from Dracula. It's the scene where the monster and, for lack of a better terminology, the monster expert get to know each other. And they sort of have, like, this battle with words, the same way Van Helsing did with Dracula. Down to certain beats, this movie almost, like, it feels directly lifted from Dracula. For example, there was an exchange that I wrote down. The men, uh, Wemple and Dr. Muller and Frank Wemple, they're all, like, talking. And Dr. Muller says... We were just talking about, and Artith Bay interrupts him by saying, "Me?" And, and <laughs> Muller responds, "Your native Egypt." I couldn't help but think of that moment. Like, who could have done this? Count Dracula.
1: Right at your service. <laughs> yeah, I, I still think it works. You know, like I actually did not pick up on that because I like I get how you did, but it didn't land nearly as well as it did in Dracula for me. But I was just excited again that they don't shy away from this sort of promo cutting kind of thing where they're like backstage at Wrestlemania meeting each other (laughs) sort of like telling each other off a little bit you know where he's like he's like you don't know who I am like you don't even know I've been around like I'm a thousand year old mummy motherfucker and Dr. (laughs) Van Helsing's like bitch like I got this fucking ring I know the scroll I'm gonna burn that shit like you're going down it's so funny too because it's the two oldest men in the world like talking to each other and they're really just like egging each other on yeah
0: and I love the moment where Muller is sort of he suspects that Ardith Bay is dangerous right there's there's something going on with him they know what the scroll of Thoth is they know he's after it but they need to make sure that it's Ardith Bay right and Muller puts together on his own that the mummy that went missing 11 years ago you know was never found you know they had the scroll of Thoth is it possible he had been resurrected he also knows that Aung San was his lover back in the day and could be trying to resurrect her. Like, Muller has figured all of this out.
1: That's the one thing where Dracula had the mirror gag to to reveal him. And this doesn't really have it in the scene. The scene is left without that.
0: Well, yes and no. This movie doesn't have the mirror, but he does present Ardith Bay with the sample of the translated scroll of thoth and with the photo that ralph norton took ralph norton in that opening scene mentions he took a photo so now we get to see that photo and it's the it's the combination of that like little piece of paper and the photo where Ardith bay has a strong reaction like he's been made it's not like dracula where he you know knocks it to the ground but it is the same moment where he reacts to it and muller knows that's his guy
1: yeah, I guess I just missed it again, because it's not as clean as in Dracula. Like, to me, it just is like, I'm like, oh, he's dogging him because he's got like all of his he's got like magic items and stuff like that. And he the mummy is like, shit, this guy's on to me. It, it ends the same way, basically. But yeah, it didn't sort of um, land the same way
0: this film just in general i find to be played much more subtle than dracula was and so this this moment doesn't have a big dramatic flair to it but it's the same moment nonetheless you know karloff is like again he's playing this like he's made of paper and so he can't get real physical but he can glare and he gets more aggressive with his language they basically flat out say like i'm coming for
1: you yeah see you in the ring
0: right and this movie also has a talisman you know so just as Dracula with Van Helsing having the crucifix. In this, Muller has a talisman that is associated with Isis, the god of life which is the antithesis of what Imhotep is all about.
1: I also like how it's accepted by everyone that this guy is supernatural or could be. The idea that Van Helsing's theory isn't just immediately thrown out the window, um, <laughs> that everyone's actually entertaining this concept. They're like, yeah, I've heard of supernatural stuff happening before. Like, maybe this is that. Totally. Like, let's investigate further.
0: He does seem to convince Sir Joseph. So when Arthur Bay takes off... With his Nubian servant, Muller instructs Sir Joseph to destroy that scroll. You know, without the scroll, Ardith Bay cannot achieve his goal of bringing back the love of his life. The next day, Sir Joseph plans to do just that. But of course, we learn that Ardith Bay has like a pool in his home, which allows him to spy on whoever he wants.
1: I love this idea like that he has this like reflecting pool that he looks into almost like a crystal ball and he basically reaches out and force chokes this guy yeah (laughs) it's terrific it's so cool
0: This is something, another element that I've seen uh, employed in versions of Dracula, not in the universal Dracula, but in other versions where Dracula has this ability to like transmit messages. He has like telekinetic powers from like across the city. I've seen versions of this sort of played in Dracula.
1: Do you know where I saw this? I think it reminds me of uh, Mum Ra from Thundercats, I think had like a a reflecting pool that he would spy on, on. the Thundercats with but you know his name was Mum Ra for crying out loud I'm sure they mined all the mummy references they could for him
0: (laughs) and so yeah he uses his ability it's not really clear what he does he either strangles Sir Joseph or he gives him a heart attack but either way he uh, prevents him from burning the scroll and then he sends his servant to retrieve that scroll and then immediately brings Helen, psychically, draws her to his home, where his plan is to show her the beginning of their
1: story. This is my favorite part of the movie. Also okay, we had like that 10 year time jump earlier. Now we're going to get a flashback and not just like a flashback, but like they're going to use the reflecting pool to look into the past. It's so great how like all of these filmmaking devices are like merging together. I'm having so much fun. Like I'm so glad that he has this magic pool. (laughs) I'm so glad we're going to get this flashback. I think it's great.
0: This flashback I think is really interesting just from a, um, a technical standpoint because it looks like it was shot in a very different way from the rest of, the film it looks like Carl Freund went back to a silent film you know like kind of leaned on his experience as a silent film cinematographer and shot it that way because some of it looks under cranked I don't know if you noticed that mm-hmm. and I mean the whole thing plays without sound so it makes sense that he would do that also it's set in the past which creatively why not use filmmaking styles from the past so it looks you know like there's all kinds of things happening in this scene
1: you've got very good instincts Dan because that was kind of confirmed on the commentary tracks. Like, that is something all the guys on the track put together as well. And not only that, but the music is from an old silent film as well. Uh, It's not part of, like, the new orchestration or anything like that going on and plus uh, it seems to be that it was shot at like 18 frames which was traditional for silent films and there are those sort of jerky jump cuts mm-hmm. at times and plus if you look at Karloff he's acting in a completely different manner I mean albeit he's playing a totally different version of the character but you know up until now he's been standing still for the most part giving a, a very commanding performance especially with that voice of his but here you see him like reaching and dramatically straight stretching and just like going over the top like you would get more often in in the silent era.
0: Yeah, for sure. This is one of my favorite sequences in the whole film. I think I'm with you in that it's just, it's so unique and it really sticks out stylistically from everything else that comes before it.
1: We get those beautiful shots sort of of the silhouettes and things like this feels more like the Frankenstein or Dracula kind of style. Like, you know, I'm glad the whole movie isn't like this, but it's great that we get a touch of it, a movie within the movie almost.
0: And so we get the whole backstory, sort of what we've been waiting to find out, because I think up until this point, if you're a brand new audience member, it hasn't really been explained as to why Ardith Bey is so taken with Helen. I've seen this movie so many times, it's difficult to remember what it's like to watch it again for the first time. But I think this is where that whole relationship is revealed, right? The high priest Imhotep had an improper relationship with one of the Vestal Virgins of the Temple of Isis. It didn't seem that there was any penalty for that by itself, although there's some guards in that scene who kind of shake their head disapprovingly as he's kneeling at her deathbed. But where he really crosses the line is when he sneaks into the temple of Osiris and steals the scroll of Thoth in order to revive her, which would have been incredibly, you know, sacrilegious. And as he is trying to perform this ceremony over her corpse, he is interrupted by guards and other priests, uh, actually his father. It was, it was his own father who uh, condemned him to what he called the nameless death, which is live mummification and burial in an unmarked grave. So we get the whole sequence where he is mummified alive and stuck in the sarcophagus, which is then stripped of all of its jewels and like all of the um, all the fancy adornments.
1: Yeah, it's desecrated.
0: And then he's carried out to an unmarked grave. All of the slaves that were used to carry him out there were killed, and then the soldiers who killed them were also killed.
1: To really cover your tracks. Like, talk about...
0: Yeah. I've never seen so much effort put into the death of one man before in my life.
1: This flashback is actually pretty shocking. I mean, maybe even for pre-code era. Like, first of all, this backstory, like, the whole mummy's deal is, like, super sexually salacious and taboo, okay? Which is, like, it's all about getting it on and stuff. And, like, I think the movie might also be trying to sneak in a little bit of, like, the whole, like, you have sex in horror movies, you're gonna die, kind of thing. <laughs> this maybe even this early I don't know but like the whole kind of like sex is bad all that is here I was surprised to see that and the death of like the guards and stuff they get you get like multiple shots of these long sort of spears going straight through their hearts like right through their bodies right like it's very Temple of Doom type stuff at that point like I was surprised how far they were able to take it and then this movie doesn't really have that many stunts in it but I have to give it up to Karloff for basically in that one shot they're they're putting the gauze all over his mouth his nose his eyes his entire face like he is struggling there for for a little while uh possibly holding his breath for a bit and everything stunt wise but like this whole thing blows my mind they're showing a guy getting buried alive
0: And that footage of Karloff, as we will discover, was reused and reused and reused again. We're going to see bits of that sequence a lot as we get through this franchise. So the memory of their former life over, we learn that Ardith Bey Imhotep believes that Helen is the reincarnated Anksanaman, and his wish is that she undergo a, quote, great night of terror and triumph until she is ready to face moments of horror for an eternity of love and so essentially his plan is to kill her and mummify her and then resurrect her with the scroll of health because right now she's in a mortal body so she needs to die first to come back
1: and, and not only that, this fucking creeped me out. Talk about, like, existential crisis. Like, there's a moment where he takes Helen, they're in the museum, and she's like, what's this? And he's like, that's your body. That's where your body lies. It's mummified. It's dead. I can't use this one. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm in a body already. This is me. Who wouldn't have a breakdown thinking about that? Right. And so that's the deal. Like they can't use her old body because it's an actual like mummy thing. Like she was supposed to go back into her old body, but she was in this new host instead. Right. Right. And
0: so there was something I realized about that scene. We haven't quite gotten there yet and we will. And I'm excited to talk about that because it's not as simple as Helen just saying like, no, I don't want to do that. It's, it's a little more complicated. So once we get there, I'll definitely be bringing that scene up. In addition to the whole story, of Imhotep being uh, sentenced to a live burial, and so on and so forth, did include a sequence of events. I've I mentioned it a little bit before. It was a sequence of events depicting Helen's previous incarnations. At one point, as I mentioned before, she played a Christian martyr who was fed to lions, you know, in ancient Rome. In one life, she was a Viking woman. In another life, she was a French noblewoman. For the sake of time, all these scenes were cut out of the film. And knowing that they exist, I can't say that I think that the movie would be better for including them. Because I think one of the things that's great about The Mummy is how efficient it is. And this would have been kind of more footage than is really necessary to tell the story, I get what is happening just with what's here. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I'd I'd only like to see it just because it was shot. Like, it seems crazy that there was such behind-the-scenes problem about even shooting the stuff in the first place that it's a shame that it's not even in the movie in the end of the day. You know, this is the whole thing with the lion and stuff, right? Right.
0: If you notice in the credits, at the bottom of the list of credits, uh, an actor named Henry Victor is credited as the Saxon warrior. He's a an actor who's in one of those scenes but for whatever reason his credit was never taken out of that list of credits so it's like the one holdover from that whole sequence
1: it's kind of funny uh, his name is henry victor and it's like henry and victor from the frankenstein movie combined i don't know what's happening there but you're right like you know i get the point we get the picture i don't you know if anything we're we're talking about like fleshing out the boyfriend more and doing that kind of thing right i think i feel like we've got plenty of what's going on with the mummy and his girlfriend
0: Exactly. Before Helen returns home, the dog that she had with her, a beautiful German shepherd, has been killed. Some suggest that may have been Ardith Bay's cat. I know you love that white cat. (laughs) Matter of fact, I read that John Balderston planned to have a lot more happen with that cat.
1: Yeah, so when the mummy is using his reflecting pool he's got like this a cat just sitting there you know and it's sort of implied that it's it's his familiar or something and there is sort of a moment don't they describe that the dog was found with the cat like sitting on top of it or something it was the dead dog found but the cat was sort of like in the vicinity also yeah
0: i'm not entirely sure what the specifics of that sequence were going to be but i think it was supposed to be more apparent it was the cat that killed that dog but the, clearly that dog is is not happy to be
1: <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, no, that is not a stage dog. Uh, whereas the cat doesn't even know what day it is. But I also feel like they just got any old cat because like those aren't the same cats that I see from like Egyptian stuff on the internet, you know, then have, they have completely different types of felines.
0: Possibly. Yeah. At
1: that time in that region of the world. So I don't know if that <laughs> it just seems like we need a cat. I do like the concept, though, that like he's like this kind of warlock or something now. And he's got, you know, his pet cat like a witch would.
0: In, in the script, the cat was to be more involved. All of those scenes with the reflecting pool, like the, the cat would have been like sort of more involved in those ceremonies. And they must have had trouble getting this cat. Like training a cat to do the things they wanted it to do. So instead, what we get is just Ardith Bey has a familiar, you know, who just kind of hangs out in that room, which, totally fine.
1: It is just sitting there, though, like, I saw it at the corner of my eye, and I just started laughing. Like it kind. kinda <laughs> Then I know it wasn't supposed to, but it just took me out of the moment for yeah. a second. Now it's like one of my favorite things about the entire movie.
0: Before we move past the scene, I want to mention that, in addition, I mean, all of Zita Johan's costumes in this movie are gorgeous. I mean, from that ball gown she wears, at the party earlier in the film to the sort of more traditional ancient Egyptian garb she's wearing towards the end. But I think my favorite costume that she wears in this whole film is the one she's, is that sort of like black number she's wearing when yeah. she's being presented with all of this history. It's like, I don't know. She got this little black hat, the little, or this this like slim black dress, the gloves, and the dress itself has these really interesting, like almost keystone shaped buttons. Anyway, I love the costuming in this in this whole movie. And let's, let's see, who did Con- Costuming for The Mummy. That was Vera West. I want to give her the credit because I think more than the costumes for the previous three films we've talked about, this one has like in terms of just pure fashion, this one works on so many levels for me in the ways that the others don't. Maybe it's because they're set in time periods that are much earlier and this is very modern. In, In particular, I love this look.
1: Yeah, and I think also just to, due to sort of the locations lend themselves well to contrast of outfits just by, you know, there aren't as many fez and sort of long robes in London when we get back there. It's kind of cool, like, but with change of geography, you get change of wardrobe as well um, in the way that those clash and crossover.
0: Yeah. So I just wanted to highlight that before we moved on.
1: Oh, you know what we missed that I saw? And this is pretty cool. There's a very early rear screen projection shot in this when they're driving in a car. Oh, yes. It's like totally easy to miss because it just take that for granted. Just assume it's always been around. But I know like that's something that Hitchcock would take and sort of run with like a little after this time or around this time too. And like, yeah, revolutionized filmmaking and you look at it and it's processed like perfectly. Like, you know, they don't do it any better for a hundred (laughs) years.
0: I didn't intentionally skip over that scene, but I uh, also didn't think that there was much in it. That was totally important worth noting aside from the rear projection. So I'm glad you brought it up. I, I, learned that that was something Carl Freund was a real pioneer on in addition to being a pioneer of the moving camera that was just another contribution of Carl Freund to American films so we could thank him for that now so there's rear projection in movies from now all the way until you know the 1960s and 70s you know and and you're right I don't think it gets better than this because it's so subtle and I think I don't want to keep overusing that word when it comes to this film but I mean that's really the only word I can think that's best for that particular sequence it does look really good i've i've seen far worse rear projection that's for sure
1: yeah and i mean it wouldn't stop there in the 50s he would work with uh lucy and desi on i love lucy and he pioneered like the flat lighting system and the three camera shooting system he was a pioneer of that as well so like he just kept innovating his
0: three camera setup for sitcoms is still used today blows my mind Okay, so Helen returns home, you know, without her dog, and she's kind of in one of those weird transic states. So the men, of course, assume that she's, maybe she's ill, not feeling too well, and they have her lay down while they plan to destroy Ardeth Bay. While Helen is resting, Frank places that talisman on Helen's doorknob as a sort of protection charm. But in doing so, leaves himself vulnerable. So while he's taking a nap, Ardith Bay uses his reflecting pool, much in the same way as he used to kill Sir Joseph, seeks to destroy Frank. Luckily for Frank, he wakes up and manages to crawl his way to that medallion and falls unconscious while Helen is now sort of put into another transit state and lured back to Ardith Bay's lair
1: yeah and when they get back there she is in like full-on princess garb very extremely revealing i mean talk about wardrobe incredibly hot (laughs) stuff like even to today that's like a dress like something j-lo would wear
0: i thought that the ball gown that she was wearing early on like that sort of shimmery thing i thought that was kind of revealing it was certainly more low cut than i'm used to seeing in these films the only thing i've seen up to this point that would even compare is the Mina in the Spanish version of Dracula wears something that's very low cut I think we, we talked about that on Dracula where the Spanish production wasn't beholden to American censors so they could get away with a little bit more so she's you know in a low cut dress here Zita Johan's first dress is pretty low cut and it's pretty form fitting too like it really doesn't leave much to the imagination so I'm surprised at how much before that final Egyptian costume costume they put her in got through and then they put her in that super revealing outfit which i think looks really good i mean but also you know we don't, we're not living under the haze coat anymore so it's it kind of reminded me of um carrie fisher in return of the jedi in like the metal bikini very similar to that in terms of it you know being a revealing kind of sexy costume certainly and so now we're we're in the final act we're in the end game here Artith bay has his princess helen is now pretty much fully on and she is speaking as if she is Anksanaman. I don't think she realizes that she's in a different body. She just she knows who she is and is very happy to be back together with Imhotep. But what she doesn't realize is that he must kill her and embalm her to get rid of the shell of Helen, then reanimate her so that she can be immortal, you know, in this new vessel.
1: Yeah, she can't live forever until she dies. It's almost another sort of Dracula thing. He's not quite undead, he's more of the living dead I'd say uh, the mummy but that wasn't part of, like, the deal, I guess. She wasn't so sure that that needed to take place. Like like you said, it's a little more complicated than than it's, than it's he's letting on. And she touches him, and she kind of remembers, like, oh, yeah, like, you're dead. Right. This isn't cool. Like, I did not sign up for that. Like, she kind of thought it was all over. Like, this is great.
0: Right, and so that's the one thing that I kind of picked up on this time that, like, I never really noticed before, is that she realizes as Aung Sanaman, you know, if, if she is still this person she was 3700 years ago it would be unlawful for her to touch this person who was dead and raised back to life like she is a a vestal version of the temple of isis the god of life right so the idea that someone could die and be raised from the dead like necromancy would be very sacrilegious and abhorrent you know he's an abomination and so her original principles come back to bite him in the ass she's like no fuck off dude i don't want any parts of this
1: (laughs) yeah it's like this was almost like natural magic and he's talking about like black magic or something like that like you know these repressed memories of Helens were going to surface one day one way or another and like he just kind of gave him an extra push but like now this is going too far this like you said is necromancy like this is dark arts type shit like this was outlawed even back in their day
0: so now Imhotep has reached a point where you know I've come too far I've done too much I'm not going to not have you you know like she's going to now be his bride kicking and screaming if that's what it comes to so as that's all going down muller discovers frank's unconscious body revives him and then they realize helen is gone and she must be at the tomb in the, uh, the embalming room so they immediately rush to save her but where this movie is a little bit different from draco which i really like they are too late frank and dr muller don't make it in time and they're effectively useless in the final climax of the film and we, we sort of talked about this before helen slash ang Sanaman, whoever it really is because she realizes that she's ang Sanaman, but also there's somebody else in there with her too she wants to live so i don't know if it's helen or if it's ang Sanaman. i'm not really sure i would like to think that helen has more to do with this because if she doesn't then really all helen is is a damsel in distress i want to believe she has a little more control over herself in this scene but it's really not very
1: clear yeah uh, my main reading of it was at first that helen is sort of breaking through and woke up, but it also could be read that Aksunama comes to the realization that like, oh, I've lived, like this is unnatural, like uh, there's someone else, it's their time. I see how that could be a reading, but I always thought it was Helen breaking through and maybe still speaking in Aksunama's voice or something, or it's not too clear, but that's the way I always took it.
0: It's definitely not clear, but for the sake of the character being more than just this damsel in distress I want to believe that Helen has a little more control in this scene but really I think it's up to however you want to read it it's not definitively one way or the other
1: what I like is at least we don't have that moment in Dracula where Mina tries to kill Jack right?
0: (laughs) yeah I think Helen is never used for ill here really the only goal in this whole movie is for Imhotep to be back together with the woman he loved right there's no if you just isolate that there really aren't many people in this movie who die, and when they do die, it's because they're interfering with his overall mission. I mean, he's not Dracula, in that Dracula really wanted to, you know, overtake the world, kind of. You know, he wanted to uh, create more vampires, and and, and really take over at least England. I don't see that from Imhotep, and I like how simple that is, and how collateral damage is not really a factor in this film.
1: Yeah, even though it's sort of the similar situation, I'm not getting the sort of creepy vibe that I was from something like Phantom or even parts of Dracula maybe. Maybe because there's no real comedy balancing any of it that it feels so dramatic. It almost becomes melodramatic and like I buy the sincerity of all of this. Like I was saying earlier about how much they must have loved this new fad of hey they found all this stuff in the desert. Like this is amazing. Let's get really into this. Let's make a movie about this somehow. Like I don't know I think like the movie, not that it takes itself too seriously or anything, but I think it just really Really earns these kinds of things naturally, I guess. You know, they don't—they don't ever feel like forced upon me or anything. It just feels like sort of a natural resolution.
0: What I do like about this story so much, uh, or this film, is that Karloff is not playing an antagonist. He's not really playing a villain for most of this movie, you know, because his motives are pure enough. You know, I mean, he's dabbling in necromancy, which by definition is kind of a, a villainous act. He's doing it for pure reason and only kills when, when he needs to. It's not until Aung San slash Helen decides, no, I don't want to do this. This is wrong that he really becomes the monster like in the last minutes of this film and I think that's what's cool about this monster is like, like the Frankenstein monster Karloff was able to elicit a lot of sympathy for this character you know, as, as sort of strange and weird as he is, like he didn't resurrect himself you know, he was brought back to life by somebody else. So it's 37 700 years later, I get why he would try to be reunited with the woman he loved, right? Like, all his motive makes sense.
1: Yeah, right. Like, I'm actually in a weird way, I feel for this guy. It isn't fair what happened to him, you know what I'm saying? But it's also like, you can't, like, hypnotize women to fall in love with you. (laughs) Which is, like, the other side of it. (laughs) Granted, you know, that was kind of like a coincidence, okay? Like, he wasn't trying to do that. It is what happened, though. So, like, as he keeps up the facade, you don't know, really, until it's too late that he intends to kill her. Yeah. You know, like she doesn't know that and everything. So it all seems like this is as far as it's going to go.
0: So we come to the end of this and as we as we sort of mentioned, Alexanaman slash Helen, whoever you want it to be, calls on this statue of Isis to save her from what is about to happen at the same time frank and muller arrive but they are held back ardith bay's magic is too powerful for them to overcome so as anksanaman slash helen is praying to the god of isis we get what i believe to be a better more satisfying if abrupt ending than what we got with dracula
1: Oh, my God, dude. This is like the king of abrupt endings. I love I love this sequence, though, because by the time it's over, I'm like, wait, what? What just happened? Oh, my gosh. Like, I'm so sort of like satisfied and confused at the same time of what just happened.
0: Right. I remember like when we talked about the ending of Dracula, we were both kind of okay with how it ended, but we acknowledged kind of how strange it was that, you know, Dracula took Mina down into the basement, knowing he was being pursued and immediately like went to sleep in the coffin leaving himself vulnerable to attack. Whereas in this, they chose to end the mummy with a deus ex machina, literally.
1: The hand of goddess this time.
0: Yeah. The statue of Isis comes to life and disintegrates Ardith Bay slash Imhotep. And he turns to dust and falls to the ground. Helen and Frank are reunited. The scroll of Thoth burns in the uh, ashes of Ardith Bay. I mean, it's a deus ex machina, so it is sort of a cop-out ending, but all things considered, like with everything that has happened up to this point, I really don't mind it at all. I actually really love this ending because the men are not involved at all. It's all Helen and this mystical god of life that turns out to have like she's real and saves the day.
1: Yeah, I really like the fast-paced confusion of everything that's happening at once. It is a Deus Ex Machina, but I don't feel it. I don't feel it as heavily because there's been a lot of magic throughout the movie if this was like suddenly a statue came to life out of nowhere you know and like there hasn't been any sort of mystical things before this no wizardry has happened then i'd be more like suspicious
0: the isis statue coming to life and disintegrating somebody is the only real visual effects shot you know like there's really nothing visual in terms of the magic in this film up until that moment everything else is sort of done through suggestion through dialogue and and editing
1: and then we get the shot that I really wanted from Dracula was seeing him decompose after getting a stake through the heart. and we get this great sort of couple of quick shots dissolves and fades of the mummy decomposing and some sound of him falling to the ground and collapsing and I just love it to pieces it's so great. Yeah I
0: love that these like sort of transitions to show either decomposing or um, evolution you know we'll see similar techniques used in the wolfman and we'll see something similar in the invisible man which we're going to do next so as primitive as it looks now in 2021 i really love that that's the technique they decided to use to convey that as opposed to relying on more theatric, like stage theatrical techniques where you would see for example with dracula I think I mentioned this in our Dracula episode. You would see a bat flying in the window. The bat would fly out of view and then Dracula would enter to suggest he has transformed from a bat into Dracula. You know, so instead of using a technique like where it's off camera, I love that they keep everything in camera, even though it, you know, By modern standards, it doesn't look so
1: good. Yeah, but, you know, they're still doing these same tricks today again, you know, camera dissolves and things like that to show the passage of time or makeup effects and things, or at least I remember a lot of that still happening when I was a little kid. It's great fun, and I think there's been a trend set by Universal Monsters and everything, like before The Mummy came out, from another studio was Jekyll and Hyde, which is a really great version, and in that they do sort of the same process technique of when he transforms from Jekyll to hide uh it's like the wolfman transformation you know it's just a bunch of dissolves and they keep adding and subtracting makeup and things like that and stuff so i almost wondered if it was like guys we gotta we really gotta do this effect this time like we gotta show them we're on the ball like we could do it too and it's not just something that another you have to go see another movie to get this effect in
0: right and i think sort of what i was getting at by saying that i love that they use those fades to transition even though it doesn't look as good what i meant to say by that is it's similar to like sort of how i like you know practical effects these days because so much is done with cgi and doesn't look as good in my opinion i prefer practical effects practical makeup puppets anything that is existing for real in the environment that i'm looking at i always prefer even though technically it looks fake so in the the case of the mummy i prefer to watch ardith bay decompose as primitive as the technique is as opposed to not seeing it i mean we don't get to see him collapse but i do love getting to watch the transition i told Totally agree. Sometimes the, the techniques that show the seams, you know, that show that, oh, you're watching a movie are the ones I like more. I think that's a good place to wrap up this episode. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Mike?
1: I mean, I guess I'd just like to close it out by saying I'm going to be rewatching this one a lot more. This was like a, a nice, like, sort of rediscovery for me. I'd only seen it like like I said, like two or three times now. And I definitely want to uh, revisit this one again in the future. It was a lot of fun. I love how the mummy powers up into Artith Bay, becomes a warlock. Totally crazy shit. Like, I did not ever associate with the mummy before revisiting it uh, seriously with a, you know, a fine tooth comb for this program. I was very glad to do that. It's a stunning movie. Yeah. So I definitely feel like spread the word about the the original Karloff mummy.
0: Yeah, I I think I agree with you there. You know, as a kid, as I said, I was expecting, you know, a movie about a mummy. So I was expecting more mummy and I was inherently disappointed by the lack of mummy. But as I've gotten older and gotten to appreciate more sophisticated storytelling, I find that this particular movie of all the, the universal mummy movies, at Least is the one that is most rewarding. Like I said, I'm still finding things in this movie that I've not noticed before, and I find that to be infinitely more enjoyable than a movie about just a straight up mummy shambling around in his mummy wraps, you know, for the whole 60, 70 minutes or whatever. So, like, yeah, this is a much more sophisticated story that I just really needed time to mature and I needed to develop more sophisticated taste, I guess. This is not a movie for kids. And so I'm glad that I have really rediscovered discovered and re fallen in love with this you know in my adult life ever since uh, i really started to appreciate films as an art form because i think like this one is so underrated at least if not the best mummy movie i think the reason it doesn't get watched or talked about as much is because it has this reputation people don't talk about it so why should i watch it well i think i could speak for both of us and say like watch this damn movie it's it's so much better than it has any reason to be even if it draws heavily from dracula i think in a lot of ways it improves on what dracula was trying to do
1: yes and i don't think the average Moviegoer is gonna notice any of that either if they hadn't just watched Dracula like that's we true. did or done extensive research. You're definitely right about like the demographic that is gonna enjoy this more. And, and now that I'm older, I think I you know can understand it better and uh, definitely deserves repeat viewings. And who doesn't want to see the Mummy movie where there's no mummy? <laughs> you know that's such a hook. Be like, you haven't seen the original Mummy, dude. There's no mummy. Like, what do you think that's about? You gotta watch it to find out. Like, it's great.
0: With that, I think it's time for us to shamble back down to our tombs. But don't worry, we'll return on Friday, February 26th to discuss our favorite Universal monster, the Invisible Man.
1: Oh, we're there already? Nice. I look forward to seeing if he's still my favorite monster by the end of the run of this series so looking forward to the invisible (laughs) man
0: in the meantime you can follow us on twitter at monster made pod on instagram and facebook at the monsters that made us and you can email us at the monsters that made us at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at dan cologne and mike Where can listeners find you?
1: You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester. You can hear all the other shows that I'm on, all the other podcasts at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, you can become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com/the-monsters-that-made-us. You can also pick up one of our T-shirts on TeePublic, and you can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Until next month, stay spooky, everybody.